Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with all of you here at Gospel of Grace. For those of you that may be listening in, normally we do preach verse by verse here at Gospel of Grace. Now, today we're going to be doing something out of the ordinary. We'll be doing a topical message on baptism, and I think it's relevant because we will be doing baptism in August. And so I'll be going on vacation, Lord willing, after today. But when I come back, I look forward to dunking some of you in the waters and uh, to partake in that ordinance from the Lord. Now today, as we examine the doctrine of baptism, we're going to be answering the question, what is baptism? So I'm going to reset my clock here so I know how far to go. We're going to be also answering the question, what does it symbolize? Who should be baptized and why is it so significant? Now today, I'm also going to be addressing various views on baptism, but my point is not to confront, but rather to inform And I do believe that the scriptures have been very clear as to what baptism is. All the while, we have many people in church history who have been confused as to what baptism is. And so I want you to remember that, yes, we can certainly learn and to remember things that Christians before us have taught in church history, but church history is laden with error. And we have to remember that the only inerrant authority that we ultimately have are the scriptures themselves. Now, dear ones, baptism, as we're going to see today, is a beautiful ordinance. It is a very important ordinance that is given to us by Christ. But if abused, baptism can be dangerous because people can have false assurances from false promises that Christ never made. So today, the central thesis that I have behind baptism is that it is the sign or symbol for those who believe in Jesus Christ. It is the sign signifying our union with him the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ. That is the primary issue with baptism. Now, dear ones, before we go into explaining our view, I want to look at the various views on what baptism is according to different denominations. And I want to begin with Roman Catholicism. One of the goals that Bob and I have had over the years is to teach theology to the church. And so I want to do that here. Let's begin by looking at the Roman Catholic view. And notice on the screen, the proper subjects for baptism in their view are infants to adults. And they typically will sprinkle infants. That's typically what the Roman Catholic Church does. Now, what is the effect of baptism to the Roman Catholic Church? Well, they believe that it is salvific, that it justifies even a baby before God. And in fact, the doctrine is called ex opere operato, which means by the act done. That's what that Latin phrase means. So if they have the act of baptism performed, it necessarily saves in their view. Now, this comes from their probably most important theologian, that is Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. And what Aquinas taught was that God so moved in the baptismal waters that they necessarily regenerated the lost sinner. Now, I'll be talking more about this issue and why it's wrong, but I want you to think about in the Roman Catholic position, as soon as a baby is baptized and they end up sinning in their life, they lose their justification, and then they enter into a system of penance. So in a real sense, baptism in Roman Catholicism is the first work of many more that need to be accomplished in order for the Catholic to earn their salvation. All right, now let's look at the second view, and that's the Lutheran position. Luther differed from 
the Catholic position slightly. Notice they do believe that infants to adults can be baptized. Normally, they will sprinkle infants. I was as a baby boy. Now, notice here, though, the effect of baptism to them is salvific. But notice the asterisk I have next to that. And that is because Luther believed that in the waters of baptism, the waters would necessarily bring about faith in the life of the infant. So therefore, he could reconcile that, yes, salvation's by faith alone, but he also believed that baptism saved. Okay, so that was his view. And again, we'll talk more about that in some subsequent slides. Now, the third view is perhaps the most difficult to understand. That's called the reform position. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute, wasn't Luther a reformer? Yes, but what we mean by reformed is typically the followers of John Calvin. Okay, so the Presbyterian church would hold to this view. And again, they believe the proper subjects for baptism are infants to adults, although they typically will sprinkle and baptize infants. Notice the effect, though, is different. They don't believe that it's salvific in and of itself, but it's something I would refer to as being covenantal. And that is because the Reformed tradition sees a rubric of the covenant of grace, they see a one-to-one relationship between circumcision in the old covenant of a baby boy on the eighth day and baptism in the new covenant for children who are infants as well. Now, I'll be showing you later what the problem with that view is. But again, they believe that the effect of baptism is it brings that infant into the arena of the new covenant community where they can be blessed and perhaps later come to faith. Okay, that's their view. Now, when it comes to the Baptist view, this is the view that I believe is biblical. Notice the subjects radically differ in baptism. The proper subjects are believers only. And how does baptism save? What is the effect? Well, it is symbolic. It is symbolic of what is true for us the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ, namely that the moment we trusted in Jesus, we're in union with him. We are identified with him forevermore. And I'll be showing you that that's the primary issue in baptism. It is about who you are identified with or in union with. All right, now, a succinct way of putting this, when we ask the question, how does baptism save? For the Catholic, it's by the act done. Again, ex opere operato. You baptize, they're justified until they lose it because of sin. All right? When we ask the same question, how does baptism save in the Lutheran position? It's by the faith wrought. That is faith brought about by the rite of baptism in the infant. When we ask the question, how does baptism save by, in the Reformed position, it is by the benefits of the covenant. That yes, the young child is brought into the new covenant community where they may later be saved. But when we ask that question in the Baptist position, and again, I think that that is the biblical position, baptism doesn't save. Baptism is the symbol of salvation that we have, a very important symbol of the salvation that we have the moment we trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to begin by taking a closer look at each of these views. Let's begin by looking at the Roman Catholic view. And I want to show you that their view that they are saved by the act done, again, ex opere operato, is in their own words. So I'll be citing here on the screen the catechism, and I'm sorry that it's so small. This originated in a Sunday school message. So either get some glasses on or you have to look at your handout. But I'll squint myself here and read this catechism. Notice they say their own catechism, they say, quote, born with a fallen human nature, 
and tainted by original sin, children also have need of the new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God. It's very interesting as I agree in much of what this says here, except the phrase in baptism. In other words, yes, children are born with a fallen human nature, and yes, they do need a new birth, but baptism does not do that. Baptism is the picture of the new birth, but it is not what creates the new birth. The new birth is given given to us graciously by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yes, baptism symbolizes that, but it does not do that. And that is the major problem in Roman Catholicism. Now, how do they get away with teaching this? Well, they appeal to two primary texts where they see a relationship between regeneration and baptism. The first is Titus 3, 5. The second is John chapter 3, verse 5. Let's look at Titus 3, 5 first. Notice here in Titus 3, 5, the apostle Paul says, he saved us, that is God, and the us, by the way, are believers, right? Not by deeds of righteousness that we have done, but because of his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So looking at this text, what the Roman Catholic theologian will do is they'll say, aha, we have washing and we have regeneration. Therefore, this must be baptismal regeneration. Now, this is not true. Now, let me explain the issue in this text. One thing we have to wrestle with is the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit two different things? Or are they synonymous? And I would argue that they are both synonymous. Now, there's two reasons. Number one, there is one preposition. It's actually the through. It's dia in Greek, which govern both clauses. The by is added by the English translator. So because there's one preposition for the two clauses, that would indicate seemingly that they're probably synonymous. But more importantly, it's that conceptually, the idea of regeneration by the Spirit and washing are conceptually the same. Why? Because God promised in the Old Testament, for example, in Joel 2.28, that he would pour out his Spirit like water. And then he would sprinkle this clean with that spirit and enable us to believe. We see this in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. We see it in Ezekiel 36, 25. So what I would claim is that, no, the washing of regeneration is synonymous by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, what, is the one who regenerates us, the third person of the Trinity. So yes, later baptism does symbolize what the Spirit does, but baptism does not do what the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, sovereignly chooses to do. Now, let me show you another text that they will often appeal to to try to prove baptismal regeneration. That's found in John 3, 5. Remember here, Jesus is discussing how a man can enter the kingdom of God with Nicodemus. Jesus said, I think it's in John 3, 3, right before this, unless a man be born literally from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember Nicodemus being a little dense, just like all of us. He says, how can a man enter his mother's womb for a second time? And Jesus has to respond by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now notice that phrase, born of water and spirit. Again, the Roman Catholic theologian says, aha, that is clearly a reference to baptism. 
Now, what I want to do is prove to you that that is indeed not the case. What Jesus is ultimately alluding to is Ezekiel 36, 25. I believe that that's the passage in the back of Jesus' mind. You can jot that down. What I want to prove to you is that what Jesus is describing is a sovereign work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and not some ordinance or some sacrament, as the Catholics call it, that humans do. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 8. Just three verses later, turn to John chapter 3, verse 8. And again, we will see that this is something that we cannot control. Rather, what's being described is a work of the Spirit. Notice here in John chapter 3, verse 8, I hope you've turned there. Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, how many in here can control the wind? Well, of course, none of us can. And if you could, you'd probably get a job with the windmill manufacturers and make sure the windmills are blowing for power, right? But we can't. And Jesus is liking, likening the work of the wind to the work of the Holy Spirit. Just as you can't control the wind, you can't control the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will enable some to be born again. He will regenerate them and not others. He does what he wills sovereignly. So therefore, Jesus can't be talking about baptism. Why? We can control that. And if baptism saved, we can simply put up a baptismal font and keep bringing people. In fact, if we didn't, we would be immoral. If it saves them and spares them and justifies them and keeps them from the wrath of God as the Roman Catholic position teaches. But dear ones, clearly Jesus is describing something that cannot be controlled. You cannot control the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit who regenerates. No, dear ones, both Titus 3.5 and John 3.5 are not describing baptism, but regeneration by the Holy Spirit that baptism later symbolizes. Now, just how damaging can this doctrine of ex opere operato be? Well, many of you probably remember the story from February of 2022, just a few months ago. You probably heard that there was a bunch of people in Arizona that had their baptisms thrown out and nullified by the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because the Roman Catholic priest in Arizona, I forget if it was Phoenix or where it was, but he said, we baptize you in the name of of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, rather than saying, I baptize you. The we would refer to the congregation. The I refers to Christ who speaks through the priest. And so because he messed up on that one word, all of their baptisms were invalidated. They, therefore, what? The implication is they lost their justification and the wrath of God is back upon them. That is the danger of believing in ex opere operato. Brothers and sisters, our salvation is not dependent upon the slip of a tongue of a man, but it's dependent upon the finished work of Christ alone. This is an unbiblical view that needs to be jettisoned. Now, let's look at Luther's view. For Luther, again, he believed that salvation came through baptism, but a little differently. He believed that salvation was brought about by faith being brought about in the infant through the act of baptism. In fact, listen to his own words. This is from his larger catechism. He said this, he said, quote, Further we say that we are not so much concerned to know whether 
the person baptizes, baptized believes or not, for on that account, baptism does not become invalid, but everything depends upon the word and command of God. Now, why does he say that? Because in the rite of baptism, baptism will necessarily bring about faith through the word of God, which is present from Jesus, the baptizer of the one who's baptized. That's his view. In fact, he goes on to say this in his larger catechism. He says, quote, this is the simplest way to put it. The power, effect, benefit, fruit, and purpose of baptism is that it saves, unquote. Luther believed that baptism saved, not as the Roman Catholics did, ex opere operato per se, but very close to it by believing that baptism would bring an infant to faith. Now, there were two key texts that Luther pointed to in proving his thesis. The first is found in Mark 16, 16. Let me read this, and then we'll address this text. Mark 16, 16 says, He, and that would be a believer, who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. The first thing I want to mention about this text in Mark 16, 16, it is not original to our Bibles. And before you form a pulpit committee and throw me out, I want to say this, that Mark, I believe, ends at Mark 16, 8. It's the resurrection. And so far from me having the liberal position saying that this text should be jettisoned, or that rather it's those who believe that the ending continues after Mark 16, 8 that have the liberal position because our earliest manuscripts in the Greek text do not have verses 9 onward. What Mark did is he ended with the resurrection. Nonetheless, for the sake of argument, this later redactor who put this on, I want you to see that his theology wasn't as bad as many would have you believe here, at least. Notice, what is it that saves you? Well, yes, he says belief and baptism, but that's the way it was done in the New Testament period during the time of the apostles. If you believed, you were baptized. And so notice, he is saying that belief is necessary for salvation, but it's the second clause that he confirms that salvation is by belief. He says, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Notice he doesn't say he who disbelieves and is not baptized is condemned, but rather the one who doesn't believe. Let me ask you this. When the thief is on the cross next to Jesus and Jesus says to him, truly I say to you today you'll be with me in paradise, did Jesus have to stop and baptize him first? No. And I'm not poo-pooing baptism. Baptism is important, but he went to be and is currently in the kingdom of God. Because he trusted in Jesus Christ. He had faith alone in Christ alone, and therefore he's in the kingdom. That's how we're justified. So again, Mark 16, 16 is not original. Number two, I don't think it means what some are claiming that it means. Second passage that's critical for Luther is found in 1 Peter 3.21. Here I like the net Bible. The net, by the way, is not the internet, but it stands for New English Translation. Here, Peter, in context, was talking about how Noah and his family went through the deluge of the floodwaters. And Peter here likens them going through the floodwaters as a type of baptism. He says, and this prefigured baptism, that is the family of Noah going through the floodwaters. Then he goes on to say, which now saves you, not the washing off of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Now, notice here, Luther would latch onto this and say, aha, baptism now saves you. But notice right away, critically, the apostle Peter qualifies what he says. He says, not the washing off of physical dirt. In other words, it's not the act done. It's not the rite of the washing of the water per se, but what? But the pledge of a good conscience to God. How do we have a cleansed conscience from sin before our God? Well, notice he says it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the resurrection here, notice that term. That, I believe, is a summary for all of Christ's work. In other words, you might ask, well, hey, why doesn't Peter mention the perfect life of Christ? He lived the perfect life of Christ. We need that. Jesus also did miraculous deeds, proving his messianic credentials. He also died on the cross, a propitious atonement as a substitute for us. The reason he uses the resurrection is that is the capstone of all that Christ did, and therefore it summarizes all of his work. So a good way to paraphrase this, if I were to give the Eric Dama paraphrased version, is what Peter is saying is that baptism now saves you, but it's not the actual act of baptism, but it's a pledge pledge for a good conscience through the finished work of Christ. That's what he's saying. It's the finished work of Christ that saves, not baptism in and of itself. Dear ones, Luther had a lot going for him. He came out of Roman Catholicism, and he had to cover a lot of ground in the Reformation. But in the area of baptism, I think we have to reject his doctrine as being biblically deficient. Okay, now let's go on to the reform position. This is perhaps the most difficult position to explain, but I want to begin by answering a question, and I'll have them do it, from the Heidelberg Confession. This is a reformed confession, and they ask in question number 74, Should infants be baptized? Listen to what they say to this question. And by the way, if we ask the question, how are they saved in the Reformed position by baptism? It's by the benefits of the covenant. Listen, they say, yes, infants should be baptized. For they, as well as adults, belong to God's covenant and community. Now stop there for just a moment. Isn't it interesting they cite not a new covenant text, but an old covenant text, Genesis 17.7. And they go on to say, and no less than adults are promised forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood. Now they go on to say this, therefore they too, that is the infant, ought to be incorporated into the Christian church by baptism, the sign of the covenant, and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision in whose place baptism was instituted in the New Testament. And then they cite Colossians 2, 11 through 13. So again, for the Reformed tradition, they believe that, hey, under the Old Covenant, they had circumcision for baby boys who were eight days old. Therefore, we have baptism for infants under the New Covenant. And the supreme text that they appeal to to prove their relationship between baptism of the new covenant and circumcision of the old is Colossians 2, 11 through 12. But what I'm going to show you is the circumcision that Paul refers to here is not physical circumcision of a baby boy, but rather it is circumcision of the heart that Christ affects or is affected in Christ. Notice here what Paul says, Colossians 2, 11 through 12. He says, in him, that's in Christ, You also were circumcised, not, however, with a circumcision performed by human hands, 
but by the removal of the fleshly body that is through the circumcision done by Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, you also have been raised with him through your faith in the power of God and raised who raised him from the dead. Now, I want you to notice here that the Reformed theologian will link to circumcision and baptism and say, aha, that's it. We have a one-to-one correspondence between circumcision in the Old Covenant and baptism in the New Covenant, but not so fast. When we actually look at the details, notice the circumcision, whatever it is, it wasn't the circumcision under the Old Covenant. In fact, Paul could not have been clear. Notice he says, it is not performed by human hands. Whatever circumcision he's describing, this was not performed as it was under the old covenant by human hands. In fact, notice that phrase, by human hands. That phrase is used throughout the new covenant in the New Testament for that which is deficient and often seen as sinful or deficient of the perfection of God. For example, do you remember when Stephen is about to be stoned, but he gives this long sermon about the history of Israel? And in Acts 7.48, he says, Know this day that God does not dwell in houses or temples made with human hands. He doesn't dwell in that which is deficient and only of men. Dear ones, the circumcision that Paul is describing is done by Christ. So it's not done by human hands under the old covenant, but by Christ under the new covenant. So what he's referring to is a circumcision of the heart in which dead sinners are brought to faith in Christ. And if we're brought to faith in Christ, therefore we're baptized. So do you see then it's not circumcision of the old covenant by human hands and baptism under the new covenant. It's circumcision of the heart under the new covenant, bring people to faith, and then they're baptized. That's what's actually being taught in this passage. Brothers and sisters, the link to the new covenant is not brought about by baptism. The only way anyone can enter into the new covenant community is by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. If you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, you are outside of the new covenant community. Okay? Now, with that, let's turn to what I believe is the biblical view And as we ask the question, how does baptism save? It's by what baptism symbolizes. Here, I'm citing Thomas Schreiner, very gifted scholar from Southern Baptist. Schreiner says this. He says, quote, we believe that baptism should be reserved for believers because it preserves the testimony of the gospel by showing that only those who have repented and believed belong to the church. Amen. That is exactly right. Now, there's a lot of texts that we could appeal to to prove our case, but let me put up two. I want to begin with Galatians 3, 25 through 27. I want you to see here that Paul begins by talking about the law and how it's been replaced. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, the tutor there being that of the Mosaic law. Verse 26, he says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself, yourselves with Christ. Now, dear ones, the first thing I want you to see is how did you and I become sons or implied daughters of God? Meaning we have right standing with him. We belong to his household forevermore. It was through faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. And notice 
Conspicuously, it is after that that he mentions baptism. Notice all of those who have been baptized into Christ have clothed themselves. What is that imagery about? Let me give you an analogy. Think about a typical boyfriend and girlfriend in America. The boyfriend is in high school, his girlfriend is, and the boyfriend is an athlete, he letters in football. And so because the girl and the boy decide to have a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, he decides to give her, when they're out and about, his letter jacket. And she wears the letter jacket because she is identifying with him, saying, I'm with him. And he has given it to her, saying, she's with me. That is what baptism is. In baptism, we have a symbol saying, I'm with Christ. It is Christ's letter jacket upon us. But the relationship was not bestowed by the letter jacket, but prior by faith alone. It is by faith alone that we entered into the relationship with Jesus Christ. And baptism is his letter jacket upon us that says forevermore, we are with him and he is with us and he's bringing us to glory. So this is why Paul labors that faith is prior to baptism. Now, let me show you another text that I think is critical for our consideration. And it's because of where it happens in the book of Romans. If there is one Bible book that is the most systematic of all of them, it is Paul's epistle to the Romans. Notice here in Romans 3.28, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Notice the term there, justified, dikaio, means we have right standing with God forevermore. And in Romans chapter 3 through Romans chapter 4, Paul labors hard to show that this justification is by faith alone, just as Abraham was justified by faith alone. Remember Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, why is that important? Because in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4, Paul shows that salvation is by faith alone. And it's not until you get to Romans chapter 6 that he even mentions baptism. You would think that if baptism was central to our justification before God, that it would have to be mentioned in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, or Romans chapter 5, where Paul is laying out the central doctrine of justification by faith alone. But it's not until you get to chapter 6. Why? Because baptism doesn't justify. It is the letter jacket of Christ that shows the reality that we are with him because we've been justified by faith. That's why. Okay, so dear ones, let's look at the primary meaning of baptism. The primary meaning of baptism is that it symbolizes a believer's union with Christ that was accomplished through faith. And so what I want to do is give you a little pictorial representation of what I mean. Think about this little stick figure. It's just generic man or woman entering into the world who was born a dead sitter in Adam. In fact, we know from conception on every human being that's conceived is a sinner. Doesn't David say that he was brought forth in sin and in an iniquity did his mother conceive him? He does. So every human being is born a sinner. Now, being born a sinner means you have an unregenerate heart that is unresponsive to God in faith and obedience. What must we have, therefore, to be saved? We need regeneration of the heart. So God does that by the power of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates us, that is his elect, 
enables us to believe, and we come to faith in Christ. In the very moment that we come to faith in Christ, we have this union with him. And so this is Paul's point then when you finally get to Romans 6. Listen to how baptism is about union with Christ. Romans 6, 3 through 4, Paul says, and again, he's already labored that justification is by faith alone. And he says this, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Notice here this key phrase in blue, we were buried with him in baptism. That must be symbolic. Why? I hate to point out the obvious, but anyone in here show up and you're already buried? Are you physically buried today? If you are, you're not really here. And you're probably not listening to me. So obviously, as Paul writes that to those who read it, they're not physically buried. It is a symbol. A symbol of what? Being united with Christ. I'm with him. And just as Christ was buried, I am positionally with him so that as he comes up out of the grave, I'm positionally with him as well, raised to the newness of life. I'm dead to the old world and alive to the glorious kingdom to come and walking in righteousness, as it says, the newness of life. It's all about identity. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were with him. You were unified with him. You are in Christ. Baptism is God's letter jacket or Christ's letter jacket upon you showing that great truth. Now, let me show you biblically examples that prove, I think, biblically, indeed, baptism is primarily about union or identity. Notice here what Paul says in Ephesus to, to some disciples that were following them. In Acts 19, 3 through 5, Paul says, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. Verse 5, it says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice this preposition, ace, into, into. The idea is into whom or with whom are you identifying? And initially in baptism, these people were identifying with John the Baptist, but Paul says, no, 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 you have to be identified with Christ. So they are rebaptized what? in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're with him. They're not ultimately with John Baptist, and that's not putting John the Baptist down. John the Baptist, ironically, is with Christ. And he himself said, I baptize you with water, but there's the one who is coming after me. Remember the messianic phrase? He's going to baptize you in water, or excuse me, in the spirit and in fire. You and I are with Christ, not John the Baptist. Notice here in 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 13, I believe that this is a text where Christ places us in the sphere of the spirit. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's a later text. I'm sorry. I've got the wrong one up. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 13. I'll come to that one later. He says, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul and I of Apollos and I of Cephas and I of Christ. Now stop there. What's the issue? Well, the people at Corinth are dividing over various teachers. I'm going to be identified with Paul or I'm going to be identified with Peter, who's Cephas, or I'm going to be identified with Apollos. Notice how Paul handles this. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Why does he ask that last question? The obvious answer to that rhetorical question is no. They were baptized with Christ. Why? They're with him. 
you and I are not with Paul. We're not with Apollos or you're not with Eric Dalma. You are baptized because you're with Christ. And that's the one who saved your soul and is bringing you to glory. It's all about identity and union. Now, let me give you some other examples. Here's Acts 10.48. Here you have Peter baptizing some Gentiles. It says, and he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stand for a few days. Why? Why does it have to be in the name of Christ or in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because in baptism, we're identified in union with the God of our salvation. That's what baptism is all about. It's about who you're with. Let me show you another example here. Notice in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2, you have the baptism of Israel through the Red Sea. And notice what Paul says here. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Notice this phrase, they were baptized in Moses. There was a type of baptism where Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea. And even if they wanted to go back, the Red Sea closed in and there was no going back to Egypt. They had to press on towards the promised land. The grand point that Paul is making here in 1 Corinthians 10 was addressing Corinthians' sin. The Corinthians were becoming idolaters. But being spiritual, they boasted in that. They said, hey, we're the people of God. We've got baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. Well, Paul is saying, hey, the Israelites had that. Didn't God feed them in the wilderness? They had the Lord's Supper. Didn't God give them a form of baptism? Yes, they were baptized in the Red Sea. And yet they fell in the wilderness. Why? Because of idolatry. And he says, you might do the same. That's the warning. But again, Paul is showing us the idea of identity. You're baptized into the one you're with. You and I aren't with Moses ultimately, although he's with us. But we're with Christ. Let me show you one more here. This is the one that I was thinking of earlier, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. I think this is a text that talks about Christ baptizing us into the sphere of the Spirit. So I would render this by saying, for in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Do you remember John the Baptist said, that I baptize you with water, but one who comes after me, that's the Messiah. The blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. That's the Messiah. He's going to baptize you in the spirit and with fire. Well, when does Jesus do that? Well, he places the entire church at his ascension. When later on he sends the spirit, he places us in the sphere of the spirit. So you and I are identified with Christ. We're also identified with the spirit who takes care of us while Christ is preparing a place for us in the heavenly realm. Dear ones, when you and I were baptized, we identified with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We've identified and have the letter jacket on of the living God who saved us. That's what baptism is all about. In fact, I want to give you here a historical overview of baptism. And the reason I want to do this is I want you to see the connection between history and the idea of identity. Because I think once you see this, it really makes baptism come alive. Think about, first of all, in Genesis 1-2, doesn't God's spirit hover over the waters and from the chaos, he creates. He overcomes the waters. And that's one of the imageries, ironically, in baptism, is that in baptism, God is overcoming death. 
We're dead to the old, but we're brought to the newness of life. And so goes the history of baptism. Doesn't Peter say in 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21, that Noah and his family had a type of baptism? Yes. In fact, there was only eight of those rascals in Noah's family. And they went through the floodwaters, which was a type of baptism. Not so says Eric Dalma, so says the apostle Peter, who speaks the very words of Christ. Now, what kind of baptism was it? Well, when they were deluged through the flood, even if Noah and his family wanted to go back to the old world, they couldn't. Why? It was washed away, and they had to live in the new world. In the same way, hundreds and hundreds of years later, in the Exodus, God takes the Israelites. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, they were baptized into Moses through the Red Sea, and even if they wanted to go back to Egypt, they could not. It was washed away for them. They had to press on to the promised land. Now, do you see then, this explains why it is that Jesus Christ ends up being baptized. Why? Because he has to identify with us. He's the one who's going to bring the people of God on the final exodus. So in baptism, Christ identifies with us. He is with us, bringing us on this new exodus. And the reason why you and I are baptized is because the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you were clothed in his letter jacket to mix metaphors, and Egypt has been washed away. There's no going back. There's no going back. You're pressing on right now in the wilderness, but you're heading towards the promised land. And what baptism says is that I'm with Christ. I have his letter jacket on, and I'm going to glory, and there's no for me going back to Egypt or the old world. It's all been washed away. And that's why the imagery is so beautiful. We're dead to the old as we're placed under the water and we're raised to the newness of life. Why? Because we're with Christ. He's with us. We're with him in solidarity. Now, I tell you what, that means a lot more to me than any of the the doctrines that Luther, Calvin, or the Roman Catholic Church have. People might say, well, it's only symbolism. Oh, you bet you're... You're you're right at symbolism, but that's exceedingly important symbolism. Symbols matter. How many think in here that their wedding ring isn't an important symbol? But is your wedding ring your marriage? No. It's a symbol of something important, the unity, but it's not your marriage itself, but a very important symbol. So that ties into sprinkling or dunking. The reason I want to address this, if baptism is not a symbol, then it doesn't matter if you sprinkle or dunk, but precisely because it is a symbol of the reality that we have when we have faith in Christ, the symbolism matters. And what I want to show you is that in the New Testament, baptizo, the verb, meant to immerse. That's what it means over and over. There wasn't sprinkling in baptism. There was immersion. Let me show you this in various ways. Here we have Matthew 3.16, the baptism of Christ. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Notice the phrase in red, he came up, anabino. You don't come up out of water if you're sprinkled. You come up if you've been immersed. Jesus Christ was immersed in water. This is why in John 3.23, it says John was baptizing near a place called Salim, 
And it says, for there was much water there. If they were sprinkling, why did they need much water? You don't need much water. You just need a little bowl if you're sprinkling. But if you're dunking or putting people under, you need lots of water. Let's see what happened in the book of Acts. Notice here, Acts 8, 38 through 39. Here you have the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember, Philip preaches the gospel. In fact, he uses Isaiah 53. Acts 8, 38 through 39, it says, And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Notice there, katabino. They went down into the water. Well, you don't need sprinkling for that. But no, they had a lot of water. They went down into it. Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up, Anabino, out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but, I went, but went on his way rejoicing. Dear ones, they went down into the water, and they came up out of the water. Why? Because it was immersion. It wasn't sprinkling. Now, why is that important? Because it gives us a hint as to who the subjects proper to baptism are, namely adults who believe or children who are old enough to believe. Why? Because you don't immerse babies. Baptism was done by immersion. Now, this brings me to the question, infants or believers, who are the proper subjects for baptism? Well, the New Testament teaches that baptism is for believers only. And that is the clear teaching that we see over and over again. Think about it this way. Acts 2.41. Here we have Pentecost and Peter had preached the gospel to those who were there. And notice in Acts 2.41, it says, so then those who had received his word were baptized and that day were added about 3,000 souls. Notice, dear ones, those who had received the word, the implication is they welcomed it, that is, they believed, therefore they were baptized. That's the normal way that we see things go in the new covenant. In fact, so associated with those who believe is baptism, that baptism or belief sometimes are interchangeably used. Because it would be an anomaly under the new covenant for someone who believed that wasn't baptized. And if you were baptized, it was because you believed. So you could use repentance. And if you repented, you're repenting unto faith, two sides of the same salvific coin. I repented, therefore what? I believed. And if you believed, you're baptized. So you could say someone was baptized, and what did that also mean? It meant they repented and believed. And if they repented... It meant they repented and believed, and therefore they were baptized. And if you said they believed, they had repented to believe, and then they were baptized. Are you with me? That's how interchangeable it was used. It was an anomaly in the New Covenant to say, well, that guy, he believes, but he's not baptized. No, you believed you were baptized. That's the way it was. Notice here, Acts 8.12. Again, this is with the Samaritans. It says, but when they believed, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. When they believed, notice in red, they were baptized. Now, there is an example in the book of Acts, in Acts 16, where you do have the baptism of an entire household. That is the baptism of Lydia's household. What's very interesting, though, in that example is never does it talk about the age of the household. Just some verses later, you have the, also the baptism of the Philippian jailer's household. And I want you to listen to this. This is Acts 16.32. And with the Philippian jailer's household being baptized, it says they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. 
So when it comes to the Philippian jailer's household, we know that they were old enough to hear, and the implication would be to respond to the gospel. Now, that information is silent in Lydia's case, her household, but to read into that that there must have been infants is simply special pleading. Someone says, I think there were infants there. Well, fine, but there's no data to suggest that. You're just surmising that. And at the end of the day, we have to decide for ourselves, do we want to build doctrines on what has been revealed clearly in the scriptures or that in which the scriptures remain completely silent and we're guessing? As for me and my house, I think God did a good job in giving us the scriptures. I'm going to build my doctrine on what has been revealed, not on what has not been revealed. That's what I think we should do. Now, let me leave you with one final thought. And I want you to think about as you come maybe to baptism this August, baptism is important. If you're a believer, you should be baptized because it is, again, for lack of better, it's Christ's letter jacket on you. The relationship began the moment you believed, but it is an important symbol for you in the world that you're with Christ. But as I say that, I want to leave you ironically with that fact that baptism does not save so that if anyone that's listening to me today on the internet thinks that they have assurance merely because they're baptized, because you belong to some other denomination, I want you to see that that's not true. It's by faith alone and Christ alone. Let me show you a very powerful implication. And it's a little bit of reading, but bear with me. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 17. Listen to what Paul says. As again, he's addressing schisms in the Corinthian congregation. He says, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, remember that's Peter, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that they were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Dear ones, I wanted to take note of a very important phrase or clause here where he says, I thank God that I baptize none of you. I want you to, with me, think for a moment of the implications of that. If the Roman Catholic Church is correct in their position on baptism, that baptism necessarily saves and regenerates a dead sinner so that they are no longer under the wrath of God, is Paul saying, I thank God that I saved none of you from the wrath of God? Would Paul say that? I don't think so. If Luther is correct, that baptism necessarily brings the infant to saving faith. Would Paul say, well, I thank God that I brought none of you to saving faith through baptism? I don't think so. If the Reformed tradition was correct, that baptism brings the infant into the community of the new covenant, would Paul say, I thank God that I brought none of these little ones into the new covenant community through baptism? I don't think so. But he can say it. Because it is a symbol. It is a symbol of the great reality of what we have, union with Christ the moment we believe. So Paul wasn't even sent to be baptized, but what? To preach the gospel. He wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Why does he say that? Well, one verse later, he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, 
For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Stop there. Does it say that baptism is foolishness to those who are perishing? No. It's the message of who Christ is and what he has done. That's the gospel, and that's what's foolishness to those who are perishing. That's the stumbling block. Why? Because that's what saves. Forevermore, salvation will be faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by God's grace alone, revealed by the scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. And yes, baptism is an important symbol. It is Christ's letter jacket upon us saying we are with him and he is with us and we're heading to glory. But dear ones, baptism does in and of itself not save. It rather is the sign of those who have been saved a sign of the new covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that you have been clear as to what is required of us to be right with you, faith alone in your son, a faith that you've given to us, that we weren't smarter than anyone else, but it was a faith that you gave us through the power and regeneration by your spirit. We thank you for these truths and we thank you for the power of baptism and what it symbolizes, that we are forever with you, I pray, Lord, for those who have been baptized because they have believed, that they'd always remember all the days of their life that there's no longer any going back to Egypt, that they're pressing on to the promised land. I pray for perhaps those who have believed and not yet been baptized, that perhaps they would be blessed and always having this baptism to look back to, or they could plant their flag and say, I have the very letter jacket of Christ. I'm with him heading to glory. We pray for our church. We pray for those who don't belong, that our neighbors, our friends, our family, those who don't know you, we pray in the weeks and months ahead, you'd give us ample opportunity to preach your word, that you would regenerate their hearts before us. Give us boldness to preach your gospel so that others may be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.